the volume. Hey, it's the sessions presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel. FanDuel has exclusive offers, boosts, and more all month long, baby. And when you win, you get paid real fast. FanDuel has lots of ways to play, like the spread, money line, over-unders, team totals, player props, and so much more. Jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. Such a cool feature. And you can combine multiple bets from the same game in a same game parlay to try out Same Game Parlay Plus. So download the FanDuel app today and start making every moment more. Disclaimer, 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG for Colorado, Iowa, Minneapolis, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 for Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York. 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the sessions today. I've got on the Ocho, the Champion, the Painmaker. The uh, Demo God. Oh, my God. I could rattle off so many different names for him. Chris Jericho is on the podcast today. Um, You guys may know him from his very own podcast called Talk is Jericho. You may know him from Dynamite, from Rampage, from all of the many different things this guy does. The, The Jericho Cruise. Picking this guy's brain and figuring out exactly what makes him tick. And I feel like the Jericho Cruise is like a prime example of that, of just like all things Chris Jericho. Uh, We talk some wrestling, but then we just kind of go off path and we just talk about interviews. I mean, he's a really great interview. Talk is Jericho. The podcast does really well. He's been doing it for such a long time. So we kind of talk about the uh, the technique that goes into interviewing. A lot of fun. Here's a Lionheart, Chris Jericho. Well, 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 I finally got the Ocho. Chris Jericho here on my podcast. He's been ducking and dodging coming on the show for some time. Um, and I finally have lured him on. So, Chris, thanks for coming to hang out for a little bit. Well, you kind of pulled some uh, chicanery on me. I thought this was Aubrey's <laughs> podcast, the, uh, other, the unrestricted. So I couldn't I can't. It's hard for me to tell the difference between you guys. You know, one one broad's the same as the next. <laughs> Shut up. In the biz. <laughs> <That's> stupid. <laughs> no, it's great. I'm excited. Um, before I talk to you about a bunch of wrestling things and about your career and whatnot, you have a kid that's out of the house. Is that messing you up? Not really. So my son Ash is 19 now and he um, he goes to FAU, which is in Boca, which is about a four hour drive okay, from here. So not too far. Not too far. And he's been gone since September. And here we are now in February. So, yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit strange. But you'll know this, too, as your kid, kid, kids get older. The biggest kind of um, uh, thing that 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 you miss is is like there's there was always and there still is now but always so many kids in my house. Dude, you have a full house. Oh my god, I didn't realize how full your house was until you were doing the stuff with Matt Hardy and you guys had the drone stuff and whatnot and you had like your dogs and shit all in the shots. I was like, oh my god, you like you're at capacity. Yeah. And then during lockdown, like when, when things, you know, for us, we were always working. I mean, you weren't quite here in AW yet, but you know that John was, 
So we knew right away that when you leave your house, your head doesn't explode and like things are not that crazy. I mean, it could be so, but, but I had all the kids come over. Like if you want something to do, kids don't want to hang out with their parents when they're 15, 16, 17. So I literally had like 30 kids in my house and I did always before lockdown and I did after lockdown too. So the biggest thing that my son has gone now is that all of his friends aren't still hanging out, but yeah, you, you miss your kids, but they, they turn into adults. Like, you know, Remember when you were 18, 19? I don't want my kid to turn into an adult. <laughs> I know, but remember, Renee, when you when we were 19, did you hang out with your parents? Well, yeah, I had a good relationship, but it was like, hey, dad, what do you want to do on a Friday night? It's like, fuck, I'm going out with my friends and I'll see you later, right? So you get kind of used to that too. I, I'll look forward to that. I, I'll, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I need to. It's a good thing because like my kids are all good kids. They're very respectful. And I like having them have their friends over. And, you know, my daughters are not the age of those boys coming over all the time. And they're all cool. Wait, how are you as like dad when like your girls bring boys home? How like how how does that work? At first, I was kind of an asshole until my daughter said, like, what are you doing? Like, stop. This is stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, well, not, they got to be scared. It's like they are they're respectful kids. They're all cool. And I'm like, oh, OK. Are you cool, dad? I think so. You know, I, here's where, here, here's where I became really cool. So my kids don't really have a lot of um, interest in wrestling. None of them do like they watch and stuff, but they really are interested in the fact that like, Oh, Snoop Dogg follows you on Instagram or, you know, Shaq or, you know, Giannis, you know, um, uh, and then the crews, they watch the Fozzie gigs and they, you know, they see all that sort of side of it. And they think that's really cool. So so I'm always a cool dad because I'm just cool in general. But now that I actually have these shows and, you know, I'm on the Masked Singer and I'm on the Dave Portnoy One Bite Pizza Challenge on Barstool or the Hot Wings Challenge, like that stuff, those, the kids nowadays, they're into that sort of thing. So the fact I've done all those makes me like, oh my gosh, your dad did, you know, your dad knows Steve-O, like, oh my gosh, like that sort of thing makes me a cool dad. Adding to being the cool dad, what exactly is happening? What deal have you made with the devil? What fountain of youth are you drinking from? What is happening in the world of Chris Jericho that you look as good as you do? You're moving as good as you do. You're as busy as ever. How the fuck did you ever think that you would be going at the pace that you're going at right now? I don't know. Cause I, I like, it's weird for me. Like, you know, how old are you, Chris? I'm like 52, like 52, like what? So I don't ever think that way. I've never once in my life, nor will I ever say, Oh man, I'm getting old or I'm too old for this. Like never. Once you start thinking that I would venture to say that Mick Jagger has never once in his life went, oh, I'm too old for that. You know, like maybe I'm over right now or I, I, I don't, you know, I have no interest in going to like a Vegas club anymore. Like I just don't like that type of vibe, but, I would never go because oh, I feel too old. I never felt that way. Another big thing too is, is December of last year, I had a pulmonary embolism, which are blood clots in your lungs. Right. And we were in London on tour with Fozzie. We were in England. So I was basically stuck there for like 10 days. Cause you can't fly when you have blood clots and stuff. And so after that, like I had like, a, that was kind of a big kind of a, like a, like a wake up call. So I lost 30 pounds and I got everything in order as far as heart, lungs, you know, all the stuff you have to do. And I have a clean bill of health at this point. And so I, I took that to heart, you know what I mean? So, and people said, well, you just stop drinking. Like, no, I still drink. I just, in moderation, you know, and just watch what I'm eating and just 
all of that sort of thing. So I think that's, that was a real, like, if you look at me like a, a year and a half ago to now, I look like a different guy cause I was 30 pounds heavier, but during the lockdown, I mean, fuck man, all we used to do is just drink and eat and, and not do anything. And you don't even realize it. It's like, well, I still got abs. Oh, sure. You got these abs, but then you got flab everywhere else. And you just don't realize that. So that was a really kind of a good, it was a good wake up call to where, you know, you could die. People die from pulmonary embolisms. How scary to be that far away from home and have something of that magnitude happen. Like that's scary as all hell. Your family must have freaked. Yeah, it was really scary. And the worst part was this was still kind of at the end of COVID. So there was still, you know, testing for this and like, and and my oxygen level was so low because of, of the clots that they were like, if it goes any lower, you have to go on the ventilator. And of course, that was the number one thing that all of us were like, no fucking ventilator. And the closest that I got was they had to put a, I can't remember, a cannula, the, the, the oxygen here, because the oxygen has to come up. That's something that like, you learn during COVID. One of the things why people had to go on ventilators is your oxygen percentage in your blood should be about 98, 99. It should be 100, but you know, 98, 99 is fine. I was down at around 92. If you get lower than 90, right to the ventilator. And to me, that was like, like you're thinking death sentence, right? So I didn't, I never put on the gown that they give you. And I refused to get in a wheelchair for any tests that I had to do. Cause I was like, no, that's one step closer to never getting out. That's actually like probably a good mindset. Just like you were fighting it from the get go. I am not doing any, like even from like the gown. Yeah. I know that I have clots. Like we, we got it. Give me the, the, the freaking, uh, the eloquist, which is called, but the, and the first one they give you is a giant needle about this big and they stick it right in your thigh and just like whack. It's just, it's like Pulp Fiction. When he gives uh, uh, Uma Thurman the, the adrenaline, I was like, I need the eloquence. They said I need blood thinners. They did all the tests. Okay, now you get your eloquence. I'm like, thank. Oh, no, no. Black. Ah! Because they need to get it in there right away. And and thankfully, the, the, the blood thinners worked. So I responded really well. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly healthy guy. And, and there's no reason to get blood clots. It's not like, oh, were you eating bad or, or were you, you know, whatever. They just, they, they were just there. How did you know, like, what kind of tipped you off to knowing that you needed to get to the hospital? We were uh, on tour with Fozzie and the first couple gigs were fine. And then the the fourth or fifth gig, I I started losing my breath on stage to where I couldn't catch my breath and I couldn't sing because I couldn't catch my breath. I've never had that problem. It got to the point where I called a, a doctor friend of mine in the States and she said, you might have blood clots. So when you get back, get it checked out. Uh, I didn't make it to when I got back as the last gig before I found out. I, I literally felt the whole walls closing in on me to where I was like, I got freaked out. Like, I got to get out of here. I got to run off. I almost ran off the stage and ran to the crowd at the front door. So thankfully, uh, we had a day off in London to do press. And uh, we know, so obviously, we've been there many times. So we know that rock docs, rock doctors, they come to you. And the guy came to, to, to me uh, at the hotel that we were at, the London Hard Rock. And he took some blood tests and he said, okay, um, we're going to analyze these. And in about three hours, I want you to go for a heart scan. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't play another show until we find this out. And within that three hours, they called me and said, you got blood clots. You got to go right to the hospital. I remember I saw you was in Nashville. Like I just came with John. I wasn't working for the company yet. And I saw you and I was like, oh my God, look at Chris. Like you just looked like a million fucking bucks. Um, but I mean, yes, aesthetically looking good, but being able to like move good and feel good. Um, 
I mean, shit, it's very impressive to just like watch what you do in the matches that you're having at the level that you're having them Uh, on the mental side of things. How do you keep yourself engaged? Do you ever have moments where you sort of mentally check out a little bit like you've been doing it for so long and obviously you were the king of reinventing himself. But what is that process like for you in terms of like, is there a lull where you go, I'm getting a little bored now? What am I going to do? Like, how does that process work for you? Like I was, I, I was kind of mentally out of WWE. I, I just, I didn't really want to be there anymore. And so I went to Japan a couple of times. I saw you there as a matter of fact, when John was starting to go there and it really kind of reinvigorated my love of wrestling and the creative process because WWE is amazing, but there's a certain way they do things as you know, and you fall into the system. Once you get kind of traded from, you know, the chiefs and go play for the Eagles, there's a different coach and a different system. And that's what Tony Khan's vision was very much the almost like New Japan. So that's why I, I wanted to go to AW because I didn't want to just be in WWE and just be there for the sake of being there. I wanted to try and make a difference in, in, in wrestling and change the course of wrestling history, which we did. So that kind of reinvigorated my whole love and fire and passion for wrestling. And now that we're three, you know, three and a half years in, I have a lot of responsibilities in AEW and it's not just in the ring. It's a lot out of the ring, especially over the last- Yeah, what are some of the other hats that you're wearing? Because you are very busy doing things outside of being Chris Jericho in the ring. Well, I think just being Chris Jericho backstage, like I have the most experience out of anybody in the company with the exception of Dustin Rhodes, but also because I came in uh, as kind of the flagship guy. Like when AEW first started, it was on my back for the first few months. We knew this. How many stars can we make? Let's bring in Mox. But the Cody wasn't as big as he was. No one really knew who Kenny and the Bucks were. Hangman Page, Darby Allen, Jungle Boy. Those are some of the guys I can recall working with right out of the gate. Just like we have to get more plate spinning here. So backstage, there's a lot of advice given out, a lot of uh, listening, a lot of bartender listening. You know, I've got a problem with this. I've got a problem with that. There's a lot of working closely with Tony Khan, a lot of locker room leading you know, especially over the last six months or so when we kind of had to take the reins back when there was a lot of bad publicity and a lot of uncertainty in the dressing room. As a matter of fact, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a man uh, and and Danielson and myself kind of like, we have to really take charge here because we're going to lose the dressing room. And if you lose the dressing room, you're fucked. So there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. Um, Basically everything, you know, I, I think it's kind of almost like a real general Tony Khan's probably got a lot of right-hand men, but I think I'm probably one of them. Uh, and also, too, kind of just helping out the locker room. And, and I produce probably half the backstage promos that you see, just trying to help as much as I can. How have you noticed things have changed in the last six months or so? I mean, you talk about, you know, some of the things that did happen and how you guys had to kind of take the reins back. How have you seen things change in the last six months uh, for, for AEW and for yourself? You know, that, that's that's a big question. And and um, to start giving that answer, one thing I always point out to a lot of people in the business, in the company and outside is we're only three years old, right? And I knew it was going to be like this from the moment we started, like the whole concept of EVPs and kind of that whole thing. I knew that it wouldn't really mean anything because it's one boss, it's one vision, and we have to follow that vision. I worked for Vince for 20 years. And one of the reasons why I was able to to, to get uh, as far as I did and become as big as I did, because I understood you have to do what your boss wants. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter if you think your stuff is better. Uh, in our company, there was a lot of that kind of resistance because there was a lot of guys that didn't work in the big corporate system. 
doesn't matter what you think. Our boss is, is the boss and we have to do our best to help him with that vision. So I think there's a lot more cohesiveness from that side of things. I think the infrastructure is getting bigger. Uh, you know, bringing in pros yourself included as far as like, okay, uh, let's bring in somebody who knows more about PR. Let's bring in someone who's more about, you know, uh, directing the show, someone who knows more about backstage interviews, someone who knows more about producing backstage interviews, about writing storylines that the boss will like. I just had a meeting this morning about a couple storylines that I'm, I'm working on with a few guys. And it's like, I, and not even for me, for other people. I need to pitch them to Tony because I know how he thinks and I know what he wants. So it doesn't matter what this guy, this guy, this guy wants. It's like, let's take all these ideas and write it to pitch it to where he will either say yes or no. You know, you, you understand this because you've been around a long time. You got to, you got to speak the language of, your, of, the, of the people that are in charge. You know, there's a lot of that sort of stuff too. How long does it take you to like figure something like that out? Because everybody is very different. I mean, you talked about working for Vince for 20 years to working for Tony Khan to like you then have to be pretty malleable in those situations to understand like, how do I convey what I'm trying to do to this person? I mean, how much do you think about that in terms of like what those conversations look like and how those pitches go? Is there like the time of day you've got a pitch or like when they've eaten a good meal, those kinds of things? Vince was like, you had to make sure that he had eaten because if he, if Vince was hungry, he wouldn't pay attention to what you were saying. All I could think about was his food. Right. And it's the same with Tony. There's timing things. I mean, everyone wants to talk to Tony at TV. It's the worst time. You can't talk to him. I'll talk to Tony for five minutes, just about what we've got going on tonight, which maybe could lead to something next week and next week. But I know like if I really want to talk to him, I have to get on the phone with him. Now, once again, he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got Fulham soccer, uh, which is a huge money business. He's got the Jacksonville Jaguars, which is a huge money business. And he's got a lot of other things as well. But those are basically, he runs three giant companies along with his dad and, and, and other people. But he's really good at delegating responsibility to guys he trusts, but he doesn't trust a lot of people. And that, that, that makes perfect sense, right? So yeah, you just have to kind of try and get them. And the thing with Tony that I learned is that he, when he's ready to talk, he'll talk your ear off. But you can't force him to talk if he's – and I'm the same. Like, hey, man, can we talk today? It's like, ah, I can't really talk today or I don't really have – I got so much stuff to do in this thing. Let's talk tomorrow about that thing. And you just have to realize that. So that's another thing about Tony is that that he, he's really smart and he's super receptive to all ideas. But you have to catch him at the right time and you just have to kind of figure out when that may or may not be. So you talk about AEW being around for three and a half years, still very much so, you know, in its infancy, it's a company that's figuring itself out. It is growing at like such an astronomical rate. It's such a cool thing to be a part of. And then you look at the locker room and it's a pretty young locker room. What are some of the things that you've been able to learn from those guys and girls? I mean, somebody has been around the business and worked for many different promotions, worked with so many different talented people. What kind of little nuggets are you picking up from this next generation? Well, when I came back to WWE in 15 and 16 is when I started working with Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn and Roman Reigns and um, Seth Rollins. Like those are the guys I worked with. And that was by design because I didn't want to be coming back just to work with guys from my generation, so to speak, because we've seen that already. I liked working with the younger guys, which gives them a rub to work with a guy of, of, with my experience, but gives me a rub to be working with, with younger guys that have a different style of wrestling in a lot of ways. I remember the first time Seth Rollins said, I'm going to hit you with three topes in a row. In my mind, I was like, 
one, you hit one tope. That's how that you build up to it. But then I realized, well, that's, that's not enough anymore. You know, um, it's like when I first came to AEW and saw Orange Cassidy, I thought, this is stupid. This gimmick sucks. It's stupid. And then I was like, pull your head out of your ass. The guy's super over. What is it about him that works? And then I realized it's so unique and he's, he's knows exactly what he's doing with this character. I'm like, Oh, okay. I understand. So I learned about how not to stay relevant, but you want to stay in the mix. And I remember when I was in WCW, which was, you know, a, a great learning experience, but Hogan was always working with Piper and Flair and, and staying in Lex. And those guys never really worked with guys like Eddie or Jericho or Benoit or Mysterio or that type of guys. And I thought like, how cool would it be? Like I was super hot as a heel. You could put me in there with Sting as a baby face and we could really tear it up. Or you could put, Eddie is a heel with a, with a baby face Hogan, for example. And so I always kind of wanted to keep that mindset. So I, I like working with the younger guys and there's no reason for me, like, you know, you, there's no reason to see Chris Jericho versus Matt Hardy. We've seen it before. We've seen Chris Jericho versus Christian. I'd rather see Jericho versus, you know, versus Ricky Starks or Jericho versus Eddie Kingston or Jericho versus Orange Cassidy or whoever it is, you know, Jericho and MJF being a, a team and then working against each other. That's fresh. It's exciting. And it benefits both guys. So to go to the other side of that, uh, to, to a degree, bringing back Lionheart Chris Jericho, what all went in to bringing back this version of Chris Jericho Mentally, what did you have to do to kind of like step back into that between getting the music, the gear? Did you go back and watch old tape? Like what all happened with, with bringing back Lionheart? That was actually when I was working once again with with one of my favorite opponents, not just saying that because you're here, but, but Moxley. I mean, once again, during the summer when there was another <laughs> breakdown, I feel that Mox and I, and to an extent, Brian Danison, but at that time it was like basically Mox and I really kind of kept the lights on and kept cool, you know, kept the plate spinning, but in, in the best possible way. So I think we did Lionheart. That was actually John's idea because he, he said like, you know, we're coming up to this match and I had just done a bunch of real gimmick matches with Eddie Kingston, like a barbed wire match. And we had just done the anarchy in the arena, which Mox and I were involved in. And we had done the blood and guts, which we were both involved in. So it's like, how many more gimmick matches can we do? Like I said, like, well, let's just pull it back and, and, and just do like a wrestling, like a match. And he liked that idea. And I remember once again, I was in London at the hard rock. I was doing just some spoken word shows over the summer. And he called me or texted me about an idea he had of, of, of bringing back Lionheart. Cause he was watching some ECW tapes or whatever it was. And I thought like, that's kind of a cool idea. Ask Tony and see what he says. And of course, Tony loves that because he loved ECW and, my last match at ECW, Tony Khan was in the crowd watching. What? He was like 14 or 15 and he had done really well in school or his parents had put him in some school that like some high IQ school that he didn't really want to go to. And his dad said, if you go to this school, I'll let you do anything you want. He, he wanted to come see Chris Jericho's last match in ECW, which was August of 96, I think it was. So he's there. You can see his me versus... Too Cold Scorpio. And you can see Tony Khan. If you pause it, you can circle him and he's right there. Can you imagine Shad Khan in the ECW arena? Yeah. <laughs> did he have the mustache then too? I would hope so. Sure he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, you look like a, a, a heel in an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> but yeah, so, so Tony was right into it and we thought, okay, well, let's try and get the, I had a, the theme I used was a song called uh, Electric Head Part Two by White Zombie. 
So we were able to track White Zombie down and find out how much it costs to get that song. So we did it. And and that was the idea. Let's say that I'm going to go back to my roots. I'm going to out-wrestle you. That sadistic bastard, Stu Hart, taught me everything about, you know, being violent. And you think you're violent. I'm way more violent. And we, we, that's kind of where it all started, you know. And it was um, it was a great match. It was, it was hilarious. I still have Scar right there, which I'll have forever. I think he, he scarred me here and here. And I think I got him Son of a there bitch. or something like that. But oh, was, yeah, you did get him with a good one. Yeah, too, yeah. But right. we didn't even do it. So we're hitting each other's heads. Like, I, I hit my own head on the pole. Anyways, I just covered in blood. And to answer your question, I did go back and watch some of the old Mexico submissions to see kind of some stuff that no one else did and use the Bret Hart uh, figure four around the ring post, which there's a secret to that, where if you don't watch it, you, you won't do it. You, everyone who tries it, you, if you don't know the secret, you won't do it. So, yeah, I did watch a lot of tapes just to try and get back in the Lionheart mode. I went to a storage unit that I have about 20 minutes for that. I have all my old gear in to see what I can Wait, find. what all's in this storage unit? How big is it? Is it like this organized, like Hall of Fame worthy kind of situation? It needs to be more organized. I need to hire somebody to go in there and, and, and document it all. Because right now I just I feel like, you know, say like wrestling tights. And like, there's like 15 boxes that say wrestling tights. So I tried to find the old tights and the old kick pads and the old uh, vest, which I found, you know, and, and so I, I didn't wear the old tights because I was like, well, if Kiss was going to go on tour wearing their costumes from 76, they wouldn't use the exact same costumes. They'd get a modern version of it made. So that's kind of what I did. But it really worked out good. And it was a lot of fun to the point where Tony had us. I think I've done it three times since. But the funny thing was, though, um, when we went to Toronto the first time, uh, I did Lionheart versus Brian. and it's the electric head, the white zombie music that plays. But because it was the first time we we're in Toronto, people were mad because they wanted to sing Judas. So they just started singing Judas anyways. If you watch that match, the first five minutes of me and Brian fighting outside, they're singing Judas amongst themselves. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. So, I mean, you saying that, how important, I mean, this is such a basic kind of question, but just in terms of like entrance music being so important to like crowd involvement and how much people want, like, I mean, of course, your entrance is like the epitome of that. John's has a great one for that. Uh, but when you think of like that music and how important that is to really get somebody over and the fact that Tony is willing to go out there and pay for some of this music, what like it's huge for so many people. You know, always be closing, right? If you guys ever watch Glengarry Glenn Ross, that's a big kind of motto of mine, always be closing. So Judas became my theme song because I left WWE to go work uh, the Tokyo Dome against Kenny Omega with with Vince's blessing, by the way. I called him and asked him what he thought, if it was okay if I went and did it because I was still working with WWE at the time. We've been trying to get Fozzie in Japan for fucking 20 years. Like we've played around the world. We've got a huge fan base in Australia. The UK is huge for us. We've been all across Europe, but we've never been able to get to Japan. So I thought, well, since I'm headlining the Tokyo Dome, maybe if I use my own song, it'll help the band get more popular and we can get booked in Tokyo. So I thought, well, let's give Judas a try and see how it is. And when I used it, it was with the intention of hopefully some promoter will go, wow, people love this song. Let's book Fozzie. That didn't work. But what I did find out was that this is a great song to use from a, 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 a like a vibe standpoint an attitude because keep in mind i just come off of 20 years of using break the walls down which i couldn't use in japan nor would i want to so i got to try something new well so that really fit so when when AEW started it's like well i got the song 
Uh, it's already kind of worked in Japan. I know it'll work here. And it went good. But the, the first time anybody ever started singing it was on the second Jericho cruise, which was also the famous where Mox was amazing on karaoke. Shockingly good at Sweet Caroline. I'll give him that. Not as good at Bohemian Rhapsody. Who is good at Bohemian Rhapsody? Nobody's though, good. Only <laughs> Freddie. I wouldn't even try that song. No. There's no way. <laughs> So uh, but, but, but people started singing Judas on the cruise because that's the cruise where we had uh, a dynamite filmed on board the cruise. So it was one of the greatest professional moments as I'm walking to the ring for the company I helped start on the cruise that I invented with people singing the song that I sang. And so we kept it rolling. And then when the when the lockdown happened and we were resting in front of no people, I remember the first night we had 500 people back in, in, in the venue again in Daly's place. I was like, are they going to remember Judas? Are they going to sing? I hope they do. And they did. So like, okay, we got it. So from now on, that's become part of the show to when I started the Jericho Appreciation Society about a year ago, and I wanted to change Judas to kind of another different version of it or a different song. And Tony, Rich Ward and I from Fozzie even worked on a remix of it. So it'd be less of a sing-along because I'm like, well, I'm a heel now. And Tony was like, I don't want to change it. Like, it's one of those organic moments. Heel or babyface, people, it's part of the show. They come to sing the song. You know how many times I've had to, like, curse you that I'm like, fuck, I'm singing Judas again. It's just like, (laughs) it's always in my head. Yeah, and, like, people got, oh, he's up heel and he's coming out with everyone singing. It's like, okay, we have to understand the idea of wrestling is to get a reaction. And Tony had a great point. And I, I kind of felt it as soon as he said it. It's like, okay, so we, we don't play Judas one week that gets you some heel heat. And then what do you use for a song? We don't, we've cut off our nose to spite our face when all you want is organic reactions in wrestling. And we got that. So why fuck with it? Okay, I'm a heel. Whatever. Who cares? They sing the song and then it's up to me to get people to boo me after. And it, it usually always works that way. Okay, you just mentioned being on the cruise ship, coming out to Judas. Being in the band Fozzie, um, you've done spoken word, you've written, you know, New York Times bestselling books. You have your own podcast, Talk is Jericho. Like you have lived one hell of a life, like a very full life. Is there anything that you've not done that you still want to do? Because I mean, I feel like there's like this Jericho imagination station happening where it's like, let's make this cruise ship and we'll have wrestling on it. We'll have karaoke and we have all these things. Like, what else is there to do? Like, are you just kind of throwing stuff against the wall at this point? Being like, what else do I really feel like doing? You've got so much shit going on. One of the things about being a great podcast host and, and, and you are a great interviewer is you're listening, right? You don't come with a list of questions. Anytime someone sits down with a list of questions, I know the interview is not going to go well because they're paying too much attention to the next question and not listening to what I'm saying. Okay. So why I, I, I said that is because I live my life the same way. I listen to what's going on and I follow kind of where we are, like the cruise. I never sat down and said, I want to do a wrestling cruise. The cruise came up because Fozzie was invited onto the Kiss Cruise. Uh, and when we were doing the Kiss Cruise, I was like, I can do this. Like, there's so much shit going on here. There's bands playing and there's comedians. But what if we put a ring in the middle right there and did matches? And then there's bands. And, and then I love Paranormal. So what if I bring, like, you know what I mean? So that's kind of where that came from. So I don't really have a list of things like I want to do this, this, and this, and this. It's more along the lines of like, okay, so that happened, which is cool, which led to this opportunity, which is cool. Um, I, I did a movie a, a few years ago called Terrifier 2. This movie came out in the fall and it has Art the Clown's The Big Killer. And, and because 
it's so violent. It was in the theaters for one day. Somebody threw up and that got around. This thing ended up being in theaters for uh, for a month and ended up making $10 million on a $200,000 budget. So because I was in this movie, because I was a big fan of Terrifier 1, a Terrifier 2, it's like now Jericho's like, oh, so I got an offer to do this horror movie. And I got, I was just reading uh, an offer, which as you know, in, in Hollywood, an offer means they're giving you the part for, for a Hallmark movie. I'm like, how the fuck am I in a Hallmark movie? What? Wait, can you forward them my information? Because I want to be in a Hallmark movie. <laughs> That's what I mean. But, but, but once again, how did Terrifier 2 lead to the Hallmark movie? And it's because, well, he did pretty good. Because someone at Hallmark's a little twisted and they're into that dangerous shit and they're like, let's get Jericho. Right, but the point is, it's like, why wouldn't I do it now? Because maybe that'll lead to something else. Like, I didn't, like, I don't want to, like, I want to be a Hollywood movie star. No, but I'd like acting. And and if the Hallmark channel calls, well, fuck, why wouldn't I give it a try? So all that stuff kind of... You know, it, it's kind of all in the mix, you know, so you and DJ Tanner could really shred it up. Ah, she's in a time. lot. Trust me. I looked, I looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> me and uh, Candace Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of the thing. Like I just kind of keep like the masked singer when that came up, like I remember they asked me to do it a couple of years ago. I said, this is the dumbest idea for a show ever. Like I don't want to do it. And then they kept asking, kept asking. And then I finally watched. I was like, this is actually kind of fun. Like, sure. I'll give it a try. So that's kind of like, where where my new projects come from i don't have a list of things i just kind of have like this pool of experience that i draw from that if something fun comes my way that i think i can do and do it at a, at a high level well then there's no reason not to do it no matter how unorthodox or outside the box it seems i like that sort of thing i always want to think outside the box with the commentary that you're doing now, it's no surprise that you're great at commentary. It's such a cool spot for you. And you're so sharp and funny and knowledgeable in that position. Is that something that you want to continue to kind of have a seat at that table or branch out into doing more hosting stuff? I mean, is that something that you want to do within that Warner Discovery world? I mean, there's got to be ample opportunity for you to step in and do some stuff like that. Yeah. And once again, why did I start commentating? Well, because right before the lockdown where they shut everything down in Florida and everywhere, we filmed 25, Tony will know the exact number. Let's say 28 matches in one day at QT Marshall's school in Atlanta. And 29% of the roster was available. And when you mentioned that dog sketch that we did at my house, that was originally what was scheduled that week for Dynamite. Like, it just happened. So I was at home, and I said to Tony, I'll be in Atlanta tomorrow. Like, he was like, what? How? Like, I'll get there. Like, you really going to come? Of course I'm going to come. You know why? Because I can't afford to be off TV for four weeks. Like, I need to be on TV. Like, you can't, like, not afford, like, money-wise, but afford from, like, you got to be on the show. So he goes, what do you want to do? And once again, the happenstance of it, I was supposed to do commentary that week on Dynamite. I said, well, Supposed to do commentary anyways. Let me just do all the commentary because there was nobody else available. Shivani and I did commentary for 28 matches in one day. Oh my God. How was your voice after that? Were you just exhausted? We were raw, but we were just having fun. And that's why I started with the pop culture. And that's when I started like giving, like there was just a bunch of guys that were like just enhancement guys, like Pineapple Pete <laughs> actually had a little bit of a run in AWY. <laughs> Cause it was some guy that no one ever seen that was wearing a shirt with pineapples on it. Oh, he's pineapple Pete. And this guy's Alan Eagleson. Cause that Alan angels was his name, but Alan Eagleson was the famous NHL commissioner who ripped off the whole <laughs> whatever. So my point was that's 
And then Tony goes, you did a great job. Why don't you commentate Rampage every week? So what I continue to do, it, I, I love it. But I also, I don't know if I could just do that on the show. Like I love being a part of, of everything. And I think it's a great backup plan. If, if, if like every other job that I have doesn't work, but well, then I could be a commentator, but I don't know if I could be like, and God bless Jerry Lawler. He's getting better after his, his injury. But like, I don't know if that would like I show up for work and just commentate for now. Like I need to be more involved. Yeah, I get that. I get that. It can be a little, uh, it's sort of a thankless job to a degree. We have fun with it. It is, but we have fun with it. You know, you've done it, but I have fun with it because to me, I just try and yeah. keep myself amused with like, <laughs> I can hear it sometimes. References. I'm like, oh, he's popping himself on some of this shit. Like I had, yeah. Like the other week, Dan Housen pulled out a ukulele, right. And, and they grabbed it and smashed it. And I said, George Harrison wouldn't be happy about that. And the reason why is George Harrison's favorite instrument was the ukulele. And I'm like, no one's going to get this. But lo and behold, you know, 50 people on Twitter goes, I got that. So I'm like, okay, well, if you got it, you get it. If you don't, we move on to the next thing. And it just, it's gone, right? Get off the bench and bet the NBA with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, FanDuel is giving new customers 10 times your first bet and bonus bets. Doesn't matter if your first bet is an air ball or you sink it on your first try. You'll still get up to $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you want to bet on the Lakers to make a run for it in the West, go ahead. You could do it. You want to see if the Nets are going to hold on to that number six seed in the East? You could do that too. It's all on the table with FanDuel. You could bet on everything from the money line to point spreads to which player will score first. All on a top-rated sportsbook app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use, so don't miss out. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Renee, and you too can get in on the action. That's FanDuel.com slash Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E. Then place your bet to score up to $200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Disclaimer 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369-NY. Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. Colorado, Iowa, Missouri, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700. Or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Um, okay, the paranormal stuff. What is the deal with your fascination with paranormal, with Bigfoot, with the Loch Ness, with all of these little oddities? Did you have some kind of a ghost experience? 
that's one of the reasons why Mox and I became friends was because he's into that too. And he's a Bigfoot guy. He hates ghosts. I love ghosts, but he hates them. Well, he, he told me he had a ghost experience in that, one of those creepy hotels in uh, England that we stayed in that he told me about. He's like, Hey, are you into like the, like the ghost stuff? Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Something like a uh, really kind of weird, like a uh, thing happened to you last <laughs> night. So <laughs> it's pretty good, right? That's not bad. So I was always obsessed with horror movies and ghosts and paranormal and, um, you know, kind of the cryptozoology, which is what, uh, which is what um, Bigfoot is. And I was really obsessed with lake monsters. Cryptozoology. Because I-, I don't think I've ever heard that word before writing that one down. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of any type of animal that, uh, that doesn't really know if it exists or not. It's called cryptozoology. I was really obsessed with lake monsters when I was a kid because I grew up, uh, my grandparents lived in Kelowna, BC, which is right beside Lake Okanagan, which is said to hold uh, Ogopogo, which is kind of the second most famous lake monster to Loch Ness Monster. So I always was super into that. And then um, when we were traveling in the 90s, a lot of road trips with WCW because we were on the road about 22 days out of the month, um, there was a guy called Art Bell. And Art Bell was this paranormal, supernatural conspiracy late night talk show host. And he was so popular at the time. Anytime you left one area where the radio station started to get fuzzy, you could find him on another radio station. So if you were doing like a five hour drive, you'd find Art. Oh, he's playing in Indianapolis and now he's in Chicago and now he's in Detroit. So I was really obsessed with Art Bell. So when I first started the podcast, Talk is Jericho in 2013, that was one of my things. Like, I want to be a modern day Art Bell. Like, I want to be, I want to know more about paranormal. So my bosses at the time were, it needs to be a wrestling podcast. I'm like, you got the wrong guy. It's wrestling. It's rock and roll. It's it's paranormal. It's comedy. It's pop culture. It's all of these things. And so that's where it all started. And And as a result, because Art passed away and his show kind of ended, people call me all the time to do the show about UFOs and ghosts and we just had, you know, Flat Earth and we just had one called the Bohemian Grove. What's that? It's a secret uh, club for rich people in, in Northern California that apparently has satanic and pagan overtones. Oh, my word. Yeah. So I've had a lot of that sort of stuff, too. And I just love it, man. Like to me, like Bigfoot, I'm sure Mox knows this guy called Wes German, who has a, a, a called the Sasquatch Chronicles, a great podcast. And he's convinced that he that he had an encounter with a family of big feet, Bigfoot. <laughs> and to me, it's like, I don't care if you believe it or not, uh, if other people believe it or not, if the guy believes it, if the guy uh, if the guy is um, uh, committed to it and convinced that he saw it, then that's all I need. Because that's what I loved about Art Bell. Like, he'd have an open line. If anybody thinks they're the Antichrist, call 1-800, you know, whatever. You get all these lunatics. If you think you're a witch, you're like, oh, my gosh, these people are fucked. And I'm sure some were just like, hey, watch this. But if they're into it, it makes it exciting and entertaining. And that's part of what I love about Talk is Jericho is that you never know what you're going to get with my show, ever. Like, every week, it's something different. And, and And that's the way I like it. And that's why I think it's done so well. It's still, it's top 200 in, in podcasts today. I love that you have all of that variety in the show. Your podcast is the Jericho Cruise of podcasts. It's all of the shit that you like. It's all of those things. And it's so cool that you said that because when I started the Jericho Cruise, I said, I want this to be like talk is Jericho at sea. (laughs) Yeah. And that's how I am. Like I could never, if you said, it's just, I just want you to do music. I can't do it. I want you to just do wrestling. I can't do it. Like it's got to be 
what am I into today? Like what kind of interesting stuff do I have? You know, what are you into today? Well, what are, what are the kickbox today? I do a lot of kickboxing now. Um, and then I had a meeting, a couple of meetings today, uh, talking to you. It's a priority, right? Like when, when I lock something in, it's locked in. I very rarely cancel. And I keep a, a little list on my phone of like, here's what I have going on today. You know, so that's it. So here's my three things. Vocal lesson, kickboxing, Renee's show. And then when that's done, I'll go hang out with my dogs or whatever's going on wherever in the house. Um, okay, so all things aside, going back to some of the oddities and weird things, what's with all the fucking UFOs being shot down? What do you think is happening? From my uh, experience from doing the show for nine years, I usually notice that it's some kind of a diversion for something else. Every time something like that happens, like... Remember, here's something. Remember the, all the truckers in Canada? Yeah. What, whatever happened to that? I don't know. I remember I was driving up to Canada and I thought I was going to not make it. And I made it through just fine. But that's what I mean. So there was this, everybody was talking about the truckers, 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 truckers. And then the Ukrainian-Russia conflict started and you never heard about the truckers again. Like, I get it. Like, if, if that happens, we want to focus on But what happened to the trucker guys? What happened to the Ukrainian-Russia conflict? That's all we heard about for like a month. And then it like is done. Like, are these things being shot down as a diversion or a distraction for something else that we don't want you to think about? Like, who knows, right? God, who knows? It is really strange, though. I mean, I I'm not really watching the news. I essentially get all of my news information off of like Twitter shit trending. But I was like, what is happening here? What the? It was a very strange few years with the lockdown, and then like people were so polarizing politically. Like, it was a really weird. I, I so I I'm not political either way. Like, you know, people think that I am, but I really am not. Like I vote for whoever I think is best. But I had a chance to go uh, interview Donald Trump Jr. in Trump Towers. And I was a journalist. That's a pretty big deal. Like, I don't care what side of the coin you're on. So to go into Trump Towers and it's a big glass room to talk to the son of the president and all you see on the other side of the glass are Secret Service agents facing you watching dude like it was super high security i'm like what am i doing i wore a suit like you know like and you know like it's crazy but then people get so angry about that it's like well if you don't like this one it's like people get angry that i have a flat earther on well just don't listen to that week you know and then and then i had a guy called andrew yang on who was a, a democratic candidate and that didn't get half as much vitriol as the Trump one did, but it's like, to me, it's all journalism, right? Like as a journalist, you well, should- having the conversations, right? Yeah. I mean, whichever, whichever side of the conversation you sit on, it is being able to have those conversations because that's everything. If you're going to be narrow-minded and not want to hear anything, that doesn't get us any farther. You're right. And also like, I have a journalism degree. Like I'm a trained journalist. And to me- Shit, it's more like, than me. Well, but I mean, you're, you're, you're great at what you do as well. But the thing is like, I want more challenges. Like I can talk to, you know, I'm not saying it's not bad to talk to, you know, Mox wants to come on. We've done probably four great podcasts with him now. I know Mox, he's my friend. Like I want to, I want to be challenged. You want to have to think you turn on a different part of your brain. You have to, like I had a, a I had a, a playboy playmate that the other day, she was from 96. Now she's an NFT kind of, but you know, I'm talking to her about Hugh Hefner and what the whole concept was like. I, I don't really know about that, but I want to talk to her for 60 minutes and I want to be a great interview 
uh, you know, Lemmy told me like that was one of the best interviews I've ever done. Like Lemmy, after 50 years of being in show business, like, fuck, what did I do that Lemmy was so excited about? And he said, because you always have something to add to the conversation. Like you and you listen. That's the key. That's the key. Right. And like you mentioned hosting, like it's hard to be a good host. It's hard to be a podcast host. It's hard to be the host of, of an award show. I've done quite a few award shows, Metal Hammer Awards, Golden Gods Awards, Classic Rock Awards. And it's like, we had Sammy Hager last year. How do you do? Man, eh. you know, it's not easy to be a host. It's not easy. No, it's really not. It's really not. There's so many different moving parts to it in terms of like being focused, paying attention to what you're doing while also keeping another ear open if things change or the show's running long or it's running short and you've got to adapt. Like that is a completely different skill set. Exactly. And also too, it's like, I, I take a lot from, from Johnny Carson. It's called the Carson show. I don't have to be the star. I'm already the star. It's called talk is Jericho. Once in a while, I'll insert some stories, especially if I need some more material to keep the, the, the flow going. But if you have a great guest, you don't have to say a fucking word. Just let the guy or girl talk. And you're like, this is brilliant. Like I don't have to do anything, but you still want to obviously steer the conversation to stay on track. But every time I do a podcast, it's 60 minutes of hard work. It really is. That's why I don't know if you do, but I listen back to every one of my shows because I like listening to it as a fan and not having to have the pressure of like, okay, what's coming up next? I have to think ahead. What's the next question? How's the levels? What do I got going on? You know, (laughs) it's really funny you say that though, because I literally right before I hopped on here with you, I just had on George Strombolopoulos for people that don't know who Strombo is. He is like one of the greatest interviewers of all time, like a true North star in Canadian broadcasting. He's fantastic. He literally said the exact same thing where he was like, I didn't have to get myself over. My show was not about me putting myself over. It's about having these conversations. It's about being authentic. It's about it's it all comes down to fucking listening. That's all it is. It's listening and paying attention. I had William Shatner on early on. And it's funny because Bill says uh, on his Twitter, it's like, yeah, I don't, uh, the only, I don't do podcasts. Only, only, only my boy, Chris Jericho. It's like, <laughs> yeah. but he was such a, he was such a good guest because like he would listen to what I was saying as an interviewer and then start asking me questions. And I was like, you know, he doesn't want to talk about Star Trek or whatever, nor do I. Like if I have William Shatner, the last thing I'm going to do is ask him about Star Trek. Because he's been asked that a thousand times. It's like, hey, tell us about The Rock and Steve Austin. It's like, fuck, okay, blah, blah, blah. Like, give me something new. You know, and that's why Strombo was a great interviewer. Larry King was one of my all-time favorite guys to get interviewed by. And I was very fortunate to be interviewed by him probably half a dozen times. He was great. Because he'd be like, okay, you got some kind of a book going on? What is it? And he was just so good. And there's another guy called Steve Jones. He's, he was the guitar player from the Sex Pistols. He had a show for years in LA called Jonesy's Jukebox on KLOS. I used to love doing Jonesy's Jukebox because he knew who I was, but he didn't care. Like he just knew like, this guy's fun to talk to. He's an interesting conversation. Let's just talk. I remember one time we talked for 20 minutes about plastic bottles in the ocean and how there's like a big kind of tide that's left an island of plastic bottles. So here you got Chris (laughs) Jericho, all time uh, championship wrestler. Steve Jones, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Sex Pistols, who didn't show up, by the way. And we're discussing plastic bottles in the middle of the ocean. Who wouldn't want to listen to that? And it's so funny because I feel like when you do a podcast, like I think this sometimes when I do my show in terms of like, yeah, of course I prep stuff and I go through things and I have certain ideas about things I want to talk about. But ultimately, it's when you get off track that you're in a sweet spot. Like that's when you've really kind of like hit your stride. 
you're letting your guests kind of talk about what they want to talk about. And that to me is, is, is the most important thing because once again, I remember when I had Slash on, Slash was a friend of mine, but when he says, this is before Guns N' Roses reunited. And he's like, don't ask me about Axel. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to ask you about Axel. I got Slash. Besides, he loves dinosaurs and I love dinosaurs. He loves <laughs> horror movies. I love. So we talked about <laughs> dinosaurs and horror movies. Then we started talking about the Stones. It's about an hour in. He goes, yeah, the one time you know, Guns N' Roses almost broke up when we opened for the Stones. I'm like, really? Tell us that story. Now, guess what he's doing? He's talking about Guns N' Roses. And then the conversation drifts into, would you guys ever play again? But it's organic at this point. You know, all the onions have been, all the layers of the onion have been peeled away. And it's like, I got some scoops, but not trying to get scoops. I just want to hear about the fucking stones and Guns N' Roses, you know? You can't prepare for the hang. You you like assume that you're going to hopefully get there. But it's funny because I find after I've done an interview and it's like, oh, that was like a cool, fun hang. And then you are. You're like, OK, now on to the next one. And I will still always prepare for it almost as in a traditional interview waiting to get off the rails a little bit. It's it's sort of funny. Do you feel that between interviews sometimes in terms of like what you prep? It's crazy because I don't do a lot of prep because unless it's something like something I don't like, I'm having a, a poker champion on on Friday. I don't know anything about poker. I just thought that's kind of interesting. I've never had a poker guy on. Let's talk about poker. Well, how, how do you become a poker? You know, like one of those guys you see on TV that's like, oh, everyone knows this guy. But the thing is, too, it's like a lot of times after the show, I'll be like, fuck, why didn't I ask that? Oh, it drives me crazy. That bothers me a lot. But also, too, like, I think prepare, like, for example, the, I, the, the all-time worst guest that I ever had, and I don't mind saying if he was here at the time, was, was Mike Tyson. And I've known Mike and worked with Mike for years, probably half a dozen in-ring segments. He just didn't feel like talking that day. And it's like, dude, like, you got to talk, man. It's a podcast. So what do I, I got to fill 45 minutes. So I just start talking. You can just listen to me then. And you're just like, you're, you're grasping at straws and their wheels are spinning. Like, what else can I try and get? Those are hard interviews. You know, you know my hardest one for that? It's fucking John. A lot of times if I, because any, I, the last time I, well, the last time I had John on, he was talking about uh, going to rehab and going through that whole journey. So that was actually a great episode where we, we had the content, but we did like a Valentine's Day episode and I could not have been pulling teeth from this guy more. I was like, dude, the red light is on. Give me a little something. But he just, he wasn't in the mood to talk. He was not in the mood to not be wrestler, John. And that was that. Which is funny because I think one of my all-time best podcasts and one of the most highest rated was when Mox came to AW. When you did it at our house. At your house. He actually gave me, uh, he gave me this, um, it's, a, it's a flask. It still has some liquid in it. He gave me this at your house because that's where he made his debut was Double or Nothing. I didn't even know he had that made. That's so sweet of him. How cool is that, right? That's really cool. I mean, I wish it was a capital N on nothing, but. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I'm the same way. <laughs> but 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 it was at your house and he had a lot to say. And that was one of those ones where I just said, I'm here with John Moxley. Hour and a half later. Thank you. Good night. Like he was, he knew exactly what he wanted to talk about. And that's another thing. When you build up trust levels with people that you respect, your friends, uh, your peers, and they say, like, I'm going to wait until I go on Talk is Jericho to discuss some of these things. I have it, like, not just in wrestling, but in music as well. It's an honor, but it's a big responsibility. I don't take it lightly. Like, if you want to tell your story on my show, well, let's fucking do it, man. And I hope I can do the best for you. 
it is. It's very exciting. And it's that honor that comes with it. But also that like, you know, with great responsibility comes. What is this? Great, saying? great power. Great, great, with great yeah. power comes great responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can be really stressful. Like, God, I hope that I did a service to what you wanted me to do. And I just always want people to walk away and feel happy about the conversation and what they got out there and all that shit. Because like you mentioned, there's so many podcasts and so many interviews and like, you know, I, I'll do my share, but they got to be good ones. You know, at this point in time, and I've had the Chris Farley shows of like, you remember when, when you wrestled rock and stone cold oh, the same God. night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got anything else? Thanks so much. Me? Did you have anything else written down? Oh, I love it. Well, listen, Chris, I appreciate you jumping on here with me. I know you're a busy guy. I will let you get this is the last thing on your to do list for today. So you can check it off. You can go hang out with the family, scratch those pooches. Thank you, Renee. It was awesome. Thanks to Chris for hanging out with me. Thank you guys for listening. Check everything out on YouTube, AMP, uh, wherever you guys are listening to podcasts, all the different things, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Like, tag, subscribe, notifications, do all of the good things. Truly, I appreciate you guys listening. It's just a lot to rattle off sometimes and it gets very pluggy. So I figure if I'm just going to plug it, I might as well just rattle them all off, right? I don't a lot, but I do appreciate you guys listening wherever you happen to be listening to. Um, who do you guys want to hear on the podcast? Hit me up. Hit me up on Twitter at Renee Paquette. Let me know some other guests that you guys want to see on the show. Wrestlers aplenty, people outside the wrestling world, whatever tickles your pickle, whatever floats your boat, hit your girl up. Let me know. Let's get some people on the books. All right, guys, this has been The Sessions.